I don't have a good way of predicting the future, but I do think that there are some reasons for optimism in that more attention is being paid to the problems of housing and more attention is being paid to the costs of zoning. It, it's no longer just this background idea that almost feels as if it's part of the state of nature or something. People are starting to understand that it's a human contrived thing and that it has implications. Greetings and welcome to Briefly, a production by the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Taiyi Chen, and today we'll be discussing NIMBYism, zoning, and the politics of exclusionary housing laws. I'm delighted to introduce our guest for today, Professor Lee Ann Fennell. Professor Fennell is a Max Pan Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. She's an esteemed lecturer and renowned scholar of, among many other areas of law, property, torts, land use, housing, and social welfare law. Professor Fennell, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Over the course of today's podcast, I'd like to cover, in turn, why nimbyism and exclusionary housing policies might be undesirable, then move on to the politics of zoning laws and the zoning straitjacket, and then conclude with recommendations for reform and how we might unfreeze current practices. So to set the stage for today's discussion, Professor Fennell, could you tell us about nimbyism? Sure. So NIMBY stands for not in my backyard, as I guess everyone knows, and it refers to a tendency of incumbents, um, usually homeowners, to resist nearby new developments or other land use siting choices. It can be used and has been used to resist siting of things like landfills sometimes, but it is uh, currently most often heard, I think, in the conversation around adding new multifamily or affordable housing that NIMBYism would represent the pushback against those new developments. And the way that it connects to zoning is essentially that zoning provides uh, sort of a mechanism through which land uses are kind of locked in place in their current existing way of, uh, of, of uh, being set. And we have um, the potential, of course, to, to change the zoning, to allow more development, to loosen restrictions. But in many places, it provides kind of a baseline set of, it's been described sometimes as communal property rights that the incumbents hold. Um, Bob Nelson wrote a lot about zoning starting back in the 70s and referred to this as being kind of community property rights that essentially can give the incumbents sort of a a veto over, over new development in many cases. That can be kind of the political upshot. That makes sense. And is NIMBYism and the way it entrenches the status quo and manifests through exclusionary zoning laws problematic? Certainly. I I think it can be highly problematic. One of the drawbacks that we hear a lot about these days is the way in which restrictions in zoning, including a lot of areas being zoned just for single-family zoning, can artificially suppress housing supply can keep there from being new developments that would add housing units in areas where there's a lot of demand. And when you have artificially suppressed supply and rising demand, it's a recipe for rising prices, um, for unaffordability. And that's what we're seeing in in many of our cities. And how does this relate to... (laughs) No, no, please. These are the challenges of interviewing over Zoom. The the other thing I would say is that... um, 
that zoning, as you mentioned, has this capacity to kind of entrench existing patterns of land use. And those land use patterns were initially put into place or or they they developed initially through processes that were, uh, in many cases, the product of intentionally segregative policies and decisions. And so there is a history of racism um, that inscribes land use patterns today. And there's starting to be much more recognition of the way in which things like redlining back in the 30s may have had a lasting impact on the way that we see our our, our communities today and the the patterns that we continue to see in our communities today. So, So zoning can have the potential for locking things in place, for keeping things from changing, and that can be um, stabilizing in some ways. It can have effects that that are that are helpful to investment and so on in some cases, but it also can have these other effects of carrying forward uh, patterns of land use that have this history and that continue to um, entrench segregative patterns. And so it sounds like there may be two things here. First, from an economic perspective, there may be certain inefficiencies that result from NIMBYism and zoning laws. And then second, there is this this element of unfairness. Um, Is this a fair way to think about this? Yes, I think that there are both problems of distributive justice and problems of efficiency that flow um, from zoning, current zoning practices. And I think that they are actually entwined to a greater extent, maybe than is than is fully recognized in that whenever people can't locate in places that allow them to make the most of their own human capital, we all suffer a loss. So it's not just that, it, that it's unfair that the way that land use decisions are set up and the way that the zoning structure is set up can can keep people from moving into areas of higher opportunity, can make housing unaffordable. It's not just that's unfair to people who can't get it into the places that they want to be in. It's it's actually depriving the entire economy of contributions that would that would be that would be better, that would be more valuable if um, people were able to pair up their own human potential, their own human capital with jobs and opportunities that are in particular areas that now maybe are out of reach because of the way that land use regulations operate. Right. Thank you. Uh, and what type of empirical evidence exists that suggests that the results we get from NIMBYism and these zoning laws are in fact undesirable? So certainly this is something that economists have been looking at recently and trying to examine from a couple of different perspectives. There's one line of research that's kind of looking at how much more expensive is housing given the existence of land use controls as they operate on the ground. So this gets to the point of like, why aren't we seeing a supply response if there's more demand? Why is it that housing is more unaffordable than would than would be accounted for if we were just looking at the, the cost of actually building the housing? The land cost is, is artificially inflated because of the way that, that zoning operates and because of the restrictions that are in place on being able to, to build new housing. So there, there certainly has been research along those lines trying to estimate what that differential is. And then in addition to that, there has been work by sort of urban theorists looking at the way in which people end up allocated among cities, essentially, and examining the way in which practices, land use practices or other practices that suppress housing supply and and cause prices to rise, how that causes 
some of our most productive cities to be substantially less dense than than they than they should sort of optimally be. Now, of course, there there might be a point at which a city would become um, overcrowded or something like that, where where you would go too far. Uh, but but we're not in that we're not in that area. Uh, we're not in that that zone. Um, we're in a region of the kind of graph, if we think about it in that way, where uh, adding more density would be helpful in developing more agglomeration benefits within cities, and that the current way of doing it is essentially leaving money on the table, so to speak, and it's causing people to to allocate into other places where their your human capital can't be put to quite as good of use. Now, there are different ways to think about this. It's um, possible that some people are still able to work in the cities where their labor is very valuable, but they end up having like, say, a very long commute or something like that. So so sometimes there's workarounds and ways that people continue to locate in the places in terms of employment that they want to, but there may be other costs to them. Additionally, we may see instances where people respond to the high cost of housing by creating kind of illegal dwelling units, like like subdividing up housing in ways that are really unsafe. Um, so, so there's things that happen as a response um, to the high price of housing that can also have their own negative implications. And so it sounds like we might be in, in pretty bad shape here, unfortunately, if nimbyism and zoning laws in and of themselves create outcomes that are not only suboptimal, but have these negative distributive effects, and then they give rise to these responses that are also undesirable. I'd like to shift gears a bit um, and explore the reasons why we get to this outcome. Could you tell us about uh, what certain commentators have coined the zoning straitjacket? So the zoning straitjacket is um, the name is in the title of a, a recent piece by Bob Ellickson, who has thought for, for a long time about land use questions. And he is borrowing that phrase from the lower court opinion in Euclid, um, where Judge Westerhaven um, said that what Euclid's uh, Euclid, Ohio's zoning was doing was putting the entire area into a straitjacket. And um, Professor Ellickson finds that to be a very apt description of the way that zoning operates, not only because it has these restrictions that go into place initially, but because it tends to have this kind of path dependence and the staying power and the stickiness so that you have places that are zoned for single family residences only that remain that way for, for decades, for a very long time. And it's extremely hard to break through that. So uh, why is it so difficult? Well, it's because of the way in which power over decision-making is allocated and also because of the incentives that exist for those who are incumbents in these areas. So, and and this relates a bit to uh, Bill Fischel's work on home voters. Um, The idea that that he put forward in a 2001 book, The Home Voter Hypothesis, that we have homeowners whose largest financial asset, their single largest financial asset is their home. And so they're gonna make decisions politically that are designed to, in their estimation at least, protect and ideally augment, increase the value of their home. And those kinds of motivations 
coupled with a political process that at least at least outside of central cities and maybe even within them um, it, it, in, in some contexts, homeowners may have the, the largest amount of political power and they may be able to effectively determine whether projects are going to go forward or whether zoning is going to be changed in a way that would add more density near near where they are. And so having that kind of set of incentives creates a lot of pressure against change. Um, we're also seeing, in addition to the homeowners who are sort of thought of as being the primary players in this in this story in terms of resisting change, we're also seeing that currently there are in, in, in many cities um, incumbent renters who may also oppose change. For, for very different reasons, but it's this sort of interesting coalition that they may also oppose change because they fear uh, that change might lead to gentrification, that it might lead to displacement, that it might cause uh, rents to go up or something like that. So there are different concerns that may motivate different incumbents. But if we think about there being a lot of forces that are kind of arrayed against change, that pushes us in the direction of having uh, this sort of this sort of straitjacket or this kind of ossified set of land use restrictions that become very difficult to change. And if we think about this from a law and economics perspective, are the incumbent homeowners and renters acting rationally? I think that their motivations are comprehensible. That's not to say that in all cases, normatively appropriate, normatively desirable, um, defensible. And it's also not to say sort of fully rational and kind of a, a perfectly optimizing sense, because one, one of the things that Bill Fischel focuses on a lot that I think is important and um, in a little bit of a different way, Bob Ellickson mentioned something similar, is the fact that we have a lot of risk aversion and or loss aversion going on with respect to this concern about home values in the case of homeowners or with respect to displacement in or, or, or changes that, that are unwanted in the case of renters. So when we're thinking about people that have a lot to lose and a lot on the line, well, it might be the case that some changes would actually be positive, would actually be good would actually increase enjoyment of living in an area because it would add agglomeration benefits, it would add economic benefits, it might add more cultural offerings, there might be better restaurants, it might be more fun to live there, there might be better transit and infrastructure because of more density to support it. So there might be a lot of things that could be positive about loosening up that straitjacket, allowing more development. But for people who have a lot on the line, a lot to lose, the fact that kind of on average, the expected value might be positive may not be enough to, to get them to actually support change because there may be a downside. There may be a high variance to the, to the possibilities of what will happen and a lot of uncertainty. And if a lot of a household's wealth is tied up in their home equity, or if we have um, people who are very, you know, sort of tied into their communities and want to be certain that things don't change in a way that could that could cause them to have to, to leave the place where they're living, then we can, we can understand having a lot on the line and being risk averse about changes um, or wanting to avoid, a, a, especially wanting to avoid a downside loss. Understood. And so it sounds like the position of the incumbent homeowners is comprehensible, even if not fully quote unquote rational. And then there are these behavioral considerations and limitations 
vis-a-vis loss aversion, risk aversion. And I think Professor Ellickson has also mentioned the status quo bias. Could you speak a little bit more about the fiscal considerations from the incumbent homeowner's perspective? Sure. So one of the things, one of the rationales potentially for exclusionary zoning or for zoning that is single family zoning or that otherwise keeps out multifamily dwellings is related to kind of the fiscal picture of how local goods and amenities may be funded by the by the property tax. So one way to think about this is that if you have a municipality that's largely single family zoned and everybody has a house that's of roughly equal value or something like that, they're all paying property taxes based on that on that value and contributing to things like local schools, other local amenities. If you then have, say, an apartment building comes in and you have a lot of families that are occupying it and each family is occupying a relatively less uh, valuable piece of property um, compared to the single family homes, um, then they will be paying proportionately less in property tax. Or if they're renting, the owner of the building will be paying proportionately less in property tax attributable to that particular household. Um, But at the same time, that household may have similar amounts of needs in terms of services. They may have kids that are in school. They may have other things that they need from the community. So one of the rationales that that might exist or one of the one of the reasons why we might imagine homeowners who are in the single family homes resisting having the new apartment building come in is that it could cause their property taxes to go up um, if it's effectively letting people occupy spaces that are less valuable and pay a proportionally smaller amount. Um, Now, it's the case that the, the folks who are actually occupying those apartment buildings are not really getting any kind of a bargain out of this um, because that differential, the fact that they're getting a property tax bargain is going to typically be reflected in what they have to pay to, um, to, you know, to, to acquire the unit or to rent the unit. So they aren't actually getting a bargain. Uh, the developer or whoever is going to be potentially getting that, um, that differential but from the perspective of the homeowners, they will be seeing themselves paying um, a, a larger share of, of property tax relative to uh, those who are in the less expensive dwellings. So, so why why is this an issue? Well, um, we, we could imagine that the homeowners would rather for their taxes to not go up. Uh, they'd rather for their taxes to go down, and so they might have a preference for keeping out new housing um, that is going to be less. Uh, contribute less to the property tax base um, and that is going to consume services without contributing as much to the property tax base. Uh, So so that's kind of the fiscal motivation. You can kind of understand it a little bit as similar to um, like a cover charge that might be charged at a bar or something like that that has live music. You have to pay the band. How are you going to pay the band? Well, you have some kind of a cover charge to pay for it. We don't have a cover charge for moving into a community, but instead you're you're charged kind of based on how much property you consume through the property tax. So it's really more like a two-drink minimum or something like that, where if you come into the bar, you have to consume, well, you have to at least buy two drinks. And that means that you're contributing your share to the overall 
sort of pot of money that's going to support the band that's playing um, in the context of, of the local government. Uh, we can understand the minimum lot sizes, the single family requirement in particular places as requiring consumption of a certain amount of property in order to be in the jurisdiction. And it operates very similarly to a two, two drink minimum with uh, the difference being that when you actually have a two drink minimum, I, I think you don't actually have to drink the drinks. You can just like maybe set them down. Um, and in the case of when we're talking about land or housing, you actually have to consume it. Um, th this, this is one reason why these kinds of policies can contribute to sprawl. You actually have to have the house on the bigger lot if you want to be in that community. Thank you for the for the interesting analogy. Uh, it certainly makes me reminisce about pre-pandemic times when we could go listen to live music and have a good time. Uh, I guess having discussed the perspectives of the incumbent homeowners, something I'm curious about is who are the other political players here? Sure. So developers, of course, have an interest in developing and and uh, doing new projects, and that they, of course, can have some political power. Um, it may be overshadowed in many cases by the power of the incumbents, and if in fact because we have developers that are kind of recognized as having political clout, they may trigger uh, a banding together, so to speak, of the incumbents against what's perceived as being maybe a, a greedy, you know, to stereotype the developers as being uh, a greedy actor who's trying to just make money and doesn't really care about the community. And this might lead to opposition, even if it were the case that the developers' interests in a particular instance were pretty well aligned with the goal of adding uh, more affordable housing or something like that, that, that would actually be valuable for the community to have. But I would say that the largest player, uh, set of players in the story, the, the players that, that are extremely important but that we don't actually see are the people who would like to live in a community like to live in a particular area, but they can't because they're locked out because of unaffordability, because of land use restrictions. Okay, and so so here I'm channeling a little bit um, some work of David Schleicher and Rick Hills in looking at the way that coalitions determine what ends up happening with with land use restrictions. Um, but here we have kind of this invisible coalition of people who have a shared interest in changing things, but have no way to even identify each other or to group together or to, to take political action because they're not yet resident in the places where they want to live. And so they don't, they don't often have a good way to do it. And then there's a question of, is there somebody out there who can kind of proxy for their interests? Well, maybe developers, that would be um, kind of the optimistic stories that the developers want to sell housing units. Um, so they are going to be out there looking out for the interests of those who want to move to those units. But they may not they may not be able to overcome the political forces because of the way that these projects get decided, which typically happens in this kind of one by one seriatim kind of story where we have something that's being proposed and then all of the all of the near neighbors are in a position to potentially oppose that. And we don't necessarily have a broad coalition of developers that are that are all 
banded together in, in a way that, that kind of is able to, to counter that. It's more like each project being taken on its own terms and a lot of ability to veto the projects as they come up. So that, that I think is uh, the, the impediment to the developers being able to really well represent the people who aren't there yet. Um, and then we also have potentially employers uh, you know, and, and again, these are some points that that Hills and Schleicher make. Um, we have employers that potentially could care about having a broader array of, of people living in the community, having more uh, human capital to draw on. Uh, that, that, that could be valuable to employers, but again, they aren't kind of like a cohesive single force and none of them has a particularly strong interest in any particular project that, that might be under debate. Whereas the people who live really nearby are likely to have kind of this concentrated interest. So from kind of a public choice perspective, they're gonna be the ones that are, that are the most motivated and they can easily find each other because they, they live near each other and so on. And so it, it does sort of stack the political deck. Right. It's really interesting to think about these other actors, the developers, uh, the employers, and whether their interests align with incumbent or prospective homeowners. This would actually be a nice transition to the final segment of today's podcast regarding how to, I guess, unstack this political deck. Thus far, we've talked about how the zoning straitjacket can prevent agglomeration effects um, and certain benefits to higher density housing from being realized. We then discussed how incumbent homeowners have their primary investments in houses and they can resist higher density housing in part uh, because of uncertain effects on housing prices, as well as loss or risk aversion. And then we talked about how prospective homeowners and developers and employers uh, face this type of mobilization asymmetry, and they don't have enough political clout to change the existing zoning laws. I'm hoping that this last segment can be forward-looking. I'm interested in learning about you know, how do we improve zoning laws to achieve outcomes that are more economically desirable and more fair. And so to start, what are some ways we might unfreeze the zoning straitjacket? So, so I think there's two broad strategies um, to kind of oversimplify a little bit. One would be to kind of change the decision structure. You know, how do decisions get made about land use? Change it from the current hyper-localized way that it tends to play out, um, where there is a lot of power allocated to people who happen to live very near uh, the spot where there's going to be a proposed development and where land use decisions are made at the local level, um, at the municipal level, or in some cases in, in larger cities, it might be in, at the ward level or something like that, where, where the decisions really end up getting made. So changing the structure of how decisions get made would be, would be one way. Um, having something that enables for the interests of those who aren't there yet to be heard or represented or some way of bundling things together differently to change the way that the politics play out. Um, so that, that's sort of one type of strategy. Uh, there, there have been a lot of different suggestions along these lines, including having state level government involved or regionalism that kind of can break through the parochial interests of, of it different municipalities within a fragmented metropolitan structure and so on. But the other broad strategy is to somehow change the incentives of those who are operating within the current structure. And, and these, these are not mutually exclusive. We could change the structure and change, change incentives as well. Um, but when we're thinking about changing the incentives, what I mean here is doing something that, that alters the way that homeowners and or renters are looking at the problem. So for homeowners right now, 
they are effectively investing in the local housing market. They, they are sort of forced to. As homeowners, they, by virtue of owning a home, are effectively buying like a ton of stock in the local housing market. And a lot of it is going to be determined, a lot of the value of that is going to be determined based on things that aren't happening on their parcel. It's not stuff that they're doing to their own house. It's stuff that's happening around them. And so that's what gives them this kind of extreme risk aversion, this this great involvement in the community. And so um, one way to change the way that they look at the problem would be to change something about homeownership itself. Um, and so this is an idea that's been out there uh, for, for some time and different variations of it, but ranging from things like some kind of home equity insurance that would uh, somehow protect against falls in home values that are happening as a result of, of nearby development or that are happening for things for reasons that aren't unique to the person's own parcel or their own decisions on their own property. And from that kind of idea to other kinds of ways of having investors take on some of this risk that is kind of this undiversified risk that is all just by default borne by the individual homeowner, the upside and the downside. And a lot of times what homeowners really want is they want the stability of being able to stay in that place as long as they want to. They want the freedom to be able to do with their home what they want to do with their home, but but they don't necessarily always want all the risk. So that that's, that's one sort of set of, of ideas. Um, maybe a different tack to take is thinking about ways that um, zoning reforms or changes in zoning could give benefits back to people who are especially concerned about change. So either safeguarding, again, some type of insurance idea, we could extend this into, into a renter context as well about being protected somehow against displacement, that kind of thing. Or we could also think about get somehow the way that the change gives them something back along with perception of having something taken away. So where we've seen some recent movement in uh, loosening up the straitjacket and moving away from single family zoning in some cities and um, there's Oregon at a statewide level. We have seen a lot of times what this entails is changing around the single family zone so that it enables things like duplexes or triplexes or something like that. So it's adding a little bit more density. But interestingly, what that's doing is it is also giving each individual owner that additional density possibility as well. So it's not just that there's going to be development near them, it's that they also have the right to do that development themselves, to change their single family home into a duplex or a triplex, something like that, 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 that could potentially be more valuable. It could at least give them more flexibility if they want to change around the way that they're using their home, uh, that they won't be sort of bound by their own little personal straitjacket and how they, how they use their home, that it has to always be a single family home. So giving back in that way, I think is, is very interesting because it's kind of giving a reciprocal benefit back. And it's a little bit of an interesting spin on the, the not in my backyard kind of idea, because we always think about like not in my backyard that everybody's wanting to push things further away from them. But this is kind of like an opposite strategy. It's kind of like, um, what if you what if you literally do make it be 
you know, sort of in their backyard and front yard and their own property, as well as on the properties of other people near them, then perhaps there can be an opportunity to see a reciprocal benefit from it. The other the other thing I think that's related to this is that sometimes people might not see much benefit from some kind of incremental change. But if there were enough bundled changes that would give them back something valuable, as a result of what's happening, that this would be more attractive rather than being less attractive. Sometimes what, what's needed is maybe a, a bigger change rather than simply a smaller one. Yeah, those are all very fascinating ideas uh, and helpful as we think about ways to to loosen up the zoning straitjacket. Uh, you mentioned Oregon at the state level and certain cities. I know Minneapolis and Vancouver, they've been able to change their zoning laws in ways that have allowed for higher density housing. Could you speak to maybe some of the concrete steps and strategies these cities or, or the state uh, took to achieve this end goal? Yeah, so so I'm not really an expert on the inner workings of the political process in any of these particular places, but it, it, it's starting to happen in a few different places. And so we can sort of speak to like observing and seeing maybe general general trends or what might be going on. So, you know, as you mentioned, Vancouver went to allowing, I guess, duplexes everywhere, uh, Minneapolis, um, effectively triplexes. And then we have Oregon with, uh, it sort of depends on the size of, of the municipality, exactly how the rules work, but uh, but effectively, similarly, small amounts of, of, of added density, um, triplexes and duplexes and, and, and so forth. Um, and then we more recently, I guess in, in February, Berkeley voted to some kind of a resolution that they're going to try to get rid of their single family exclusive zones by 2022. And they became, I guess, the second California city to do this. Sacramento had, had acted previously. So we're starting to see this popping up um, a, a bunch of different places, uh, still not, not like an overwhelming trend, but, um, but, but we're seeing it pop up. And part of what I see going on in this is a really an increased recognition of um, some of some of the the racialized past and the history of discrimination that lies behind existing land use patterns. This has been mentioned, uh, and it was explicitly mentioned in the conversation around the Berkeley resolution. And I think it's come up in other places. And I think it matters that in recent years there's been much more knowledge about kind of redlining. There's been big projects to kind of digitize the actual homeowner loan corporation of redlined maps that were used back in the 30s to rate areas as different degrees of risk based on expressly racial criteria uh, in, in part. And so those kinds of um, historical Things that have, that have been there, obviously, for, for a long time are now really coming up and surfacing and becoming more salient to people. People are starting to realize that there is this, this racist history that underwrites or under underscores the existing land use patterns. And so I think that there's a, there's a desire to do something about that that is part of the story. I also think part of the story is just the unaffordability of housing, the understanding that there is a need to do something about it. This idea of it being reciprocal in nature so that people are getting something back as they change their zoning, they're getting something back that may be valuable. It's important to know that when we talk about, you know, quote, getting rid of single family zoning, it's just loosening the restriction to say that you can have a duplex or a triplex or something like that. It is not going and bulldozing everybody's single family house or physically changing the landscape at all. So no one 
obviously has to change what what their what their home is being used for. They have the option to. And so um, I, I think there's a sense in which this is perceived as a relatively non-threatening type of change because it's not something that is likely to happen very quickly. It'll be interesting to see how many people end up actually changing around their single family homes to make it into a duplex or make it into a triplex or to add a separate uh, accessory dwelling unit or something like that. But But it'll be interesting to kind of see how that actually plays out the sort of small scale of the change may be part of its appeal. Uh, You know, I'm I'm not certain about that, but there's at least the possibility that by having these examples out there, that it will maybe provide information that can inform what other cities choose to do. And it seems as if it is somehow able to successfully kind of navigate. I, I suppose the other thing I would say about the political picture, and again, I don't, I don't know the, the story on the ground anywhere, but it, it does seem to sort of take big developers out of the equation a bit by making it all about the ability to have these smaller kinds of units on your own property. That like now you can have a duplex, now you can have a three flat. This is uh, different from something that would be like a like a developer putting in, you know, 200 units, 200 department units or something like that in one place. Thank you, Professor, for those instructive and interesting points. Uh, I guess taking a step back from these specific instances and with an eye towards general trends, you know, we've mentioned these certain areas that have exhibited a willingness to move from single family housing to higher density housing. At the same time with the global pandemic and COVID-19, People seem to be moving away from higher density areas like New York City and LA, both out of concerns for their safety and also because work from home has kind of become the new norm. There seems to be a rekindled preference for for single family houses with large lawns that are sufficiently far away from the neighbors. Do you think that this might have any lasting impacts on future zoning law trends? Yeah, I I think there will be long-term ramifications. I don't know what form exactly they're going to take. One possible future might be that people think a little bit more flexibly about where it is that they live. So rather than being committed to always being out in some suburban area where you have a lot of space or being in a city, maybe there would be the ability to have more flexible sharing of dwellings or movement among dwellings or something like that. We already see some a little bit of movement of this with some of the sharing economies type of things, but there is a lot of room to change around the way that we think about our interactions with space, um, and especially over time, whether it makes sense to be kind of tethered to a particular geospatial spot or whether more more drifting around would would be better somehow. So I've I've written a bit on on these kinds of issues in in, uh, in in various contexts and I tend to be kind of a fan of thinking about how we might interject more flexibility in enabling uh, our cities to be able to reconfigure to meet new needs and it may be that the pandemic has by sort of familiarizing everyone, maybe over-familiarizing everyone with Zoom and other platforms has made some things possible that otherwise would have seemed out of reach. So so I, I wouldn't really predict that everyone's going to move to the hinterlands and, and work remotely. I really don't, I, I don't think that's what will happen. But would it be possible that there could be, you know, more density in central cities coupled with uh, more opportunities for people to get away for spans of time or something like that? I mean, maybe, I'm not sure. Fair enough. And so for the final question of today's podcast, 
President Biden recently revealed his American Jobs Plan, which called on Congress to create a plan that would tie grants to communities that eliminate exclusionary housing practices. What are your general thoughts about those sections? And is there any reason for us to be optimistic that even if we can't fully remove the zoning straitjacket, that we might be able to loosen it with time? I think I will say broadly that what what I like about, about the plan is that it is trying to look at things in a somewhat holistic way and seeing how different pieces are connected to each other, how infrastructure is connected to social justice, how we have um, history that, that creates certain kinds of things that need to now be overcome in particular ways. So, so I like the idea of, of thinking big and thinking about things as they connect to each other, because I feel like that's where the opportunities come for making real progress. I don't have a good way of predicting the future, but I do think that there are some reasons for optimism in that more attention is being paid to the problems of housing and more attention is being paid to the costs of zoning. It's no longer just this background idea that almost feels as if it's part of the state of nature or something. People are starting to understand that it's a human contrived thing and that it has implications. Um, And so I think that with the recognition of this, coupled with perhaps new investments in trying to put together changes in that domain with other changes that intersect with it, that there can be the potential for changing the way that a lot of cities look at this. Thank you, Professor. And with that, we conclude today's discussion of NIMBYism and the politics of zoning laws. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to contribute to the podcast episode and for sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to feature you on the show. Thank you for the instructive and engaging conversation. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UCHILREV and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode.